Hello. Hey, good morning, brothers and sisters. As a Christian, often the phrase used when you meet up with people, when you talk with people, when you actually concern yourself and get involved with others, I've often heard the phrase used, how's your walk, brother? How's your walk, sister? Uh, Making emphasis regarding the journey that you're on. Because what happens when you walk? You put one step in front of the other, one step in front of the other, and you move in a single direction. Now, two weeks ago, we had Cam come and share with us about pressing on, about pursuing God, about having Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, being our central focus, being Him, being our go-to line, not what we did, not how we did it, not where we're from, not our ethnicity, not our careers, not our grandchildren, or any of those identifying factors. The thing that was to be our identifying factor was that we were a child of the living God because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And then last week, we looked at the things that can hinder us from pursuing God with the same hunger and vigor in which he pursued us. Uh, We looked at the things that could interfere with us, whether it be, uh, once again, those same things I mentioned before about what identifies us can also become our gods, the things that we worship, whether it be our provision, our ability to provide, or the resources that we have. And so as you take one step after the other, it makes sense then that the next logical place to move to is regards our responsibility. I, I think that's not exactly the right word, but what is required of us as followers of Jesus Christ. It makes sense that if we then are to pursue the Lord Jesus, if we are to deal with those things that hinder us from pursuing him, then we are to take up the commission that he has given us as his disciples. And that is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through to 20, which says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There are several things communicated to these disciples that we can draw from now and take note of. These three things are, firstly, the authority he bestows. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and it is an authority that he passes on to us. Have a look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. You see that emphasized when he sends his disciples out. The divine authority that has been given to us because it's the authority of Jesus Christ. The second thing we have is the commission he gives. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So not only have we been given authority, we've been given authority to go and make. It's like being given permission to do something. Can I go and do this? Yes, you may. This is what's been given to us. We've been given authority in order to do. And then thirdly is the action that he commands, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, number one and number three are sermons in and of their own. Okay, we could do a massive amount of sermons like this, but it's actually the second one that I want to focus on today. The second one that, although those other two are of great importance and can be delved and studied in depth, 
we, I think, want to be encouraged by looking about what we have in the person of Jesus Christ and the responsibility, the instructions that have been given to us. You see, we know this is what's required of us, and yet we, as the people of God, find it difficult to do. The exhortation to make disciples, not to make converts, for it is the Spirit of God that converts a soul, not to make church members, not to make participants, not to make attendees, but to make disciples. Now, this raises the question, what does it mean to make a disciple? What does it look like to effectively create and reproduce disciples that then in turn reproduce other disciples? I remember a few years ago that was shared with us from Auntie Evelyn, from Pastor Evelyn, when she shared this about growing exponentially. Um, I remember an illustration given about you can teach a person, or you can, you can go catch fish, but you give someone else a, f- a fishing rod and teach them how to do it, then they can do it themselves. That those whole things make perfect sense regarding discipleship. There is an infrastructure that is set up within Scripture and the capacity that is given to us by a spirit to be able to impart a reality to others that enables them to press on that enables them to deal with, and enables them to make disciples. That is what has been set in place. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the same principle that Paul took on board as he invested into people's lives. It wasn't a matter of just investing. It was a matter of equipping them to do likewise. That's what discipleship is. The building and establishing of these people would then in turn invest into others in order for those to invest into others as well and so on and so on and so on. Making disciples is what that phrase is called producing reproduces producing reproduces and in John 15:16 it's producing people that will last having fruit that will last in John chapter 15 i believe verse 16 i chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last fruit that will last tim hawkins from st paul's castle hill wrote a book entitled that fruit that will last It was a book on discipleship. I encourage you to have a read of it. It's actually very, very encouraging. But the best way for us to learn how disciples are to be made is to look at how our Lord did so. And drawing from His example, drawing from His life as it's portrayed in the Gospels and see what He did. Now, to the leaders... Uh, like all the cell group leaders within the church, I gave them a challenge. I spoke about a Bible challenge last week. The Bible challenge was this, because I asked the leaders to do this, and I asked certain individuals as well to read through the Gospel of Matthew. And as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, read it asking yourself this question whilst you read. How did Jesus disciple? How did Jesus disciple? And then share with me your thoughts, share with me your input. And it was, I've been greatly blessed by a number of people who have shared, this is what God taught me as I read through this. This is what God taught me about discipleship. And, and as, we, as we look at this, this thing today, I'm looking at discipleship 
or lessons in discipleship, lessons to be learned from the Lord Jesus about discipleship, my prayer is that it's, we take each individual thing God convicts us about or God challenges, about, challenges us about and do something with it. See, it's, it's really easy to sit and listen. It's really easy to stand and talk. But it's about what you do with what you hear. It's, it's, everybody's in a different context. Everybody's at a different stage in life. We have grandparents who invest and can invest into their grandchildren. We have young marrieds who are, who are, who are young parents now, who are, they can invest into their kids. We have friends, we have uni students, we have, doesn't matter what context you find yourself in, whether age, race, career choice, geographical location, whatever it might be, my prayer is that we might be able to take what God challenges us about and do something with it that applies to the context that we find ourselves in. So this is not about me talking at you. It's about us talking with each other and learning together about where we go now in, in terms of discipleship. Does that make sense? Because I don't know. I, know. I know my brother Bill. I know my brother Bill. He runs a business. He runs a business. I have no idea what that's about. I have no idea what's involved in that, but he does. And he knows the context of how he is in his life. And so he can take principles about discipleship and think, how do I invest into my daughter or into my sons? How do I invest into my brothers and to my sisters? How do I invest into the church? And he takes what he can learn and contextualize it to suit him individually. You know why? Because God deals with us as individuals. God challenges us as individuals. Caress is an accountant. I have no idea. No idea what's involved in that. All I think about accountancy is numbers. Numbers. And apparently she likes them. But she knows. She knows what can be done as an accountant and how that fits in with her life and where, where she's at. See, this is what it's about. Okay, This is what it's about. It's about us connecting with God and then us in turn connecting with others. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you're going to open in prayer with me, just bow your heads and we'll pray and let's see what God has to say to us. Father, I pray that you might teach us today about discipleship, about not only being discipled by you, but Lord, by your Spirit, being led to invest into the lives of those around us. For each individual here, regardless of our context, I pray that you will speak to us personally and that you will give us the courage by your Spirit to make the necessary changes so that we might not only be blessed by others, but in turn bless others with the giftings that you have bestowed upon us. Father, please speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reason why I say contextualize the, 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 the truths that you discover today from the Word is because back in those days when people followed someone else, when Jesus called the disciples, when he called uh, Simon Peter and James and John and Andrew, etc., etc., it was common practice for followers, for disciples, to live with their rabbi. So they would go, they would follow, and they would live with their rabbi. They would eat what the rabbi would eat. They would sleep where the rabbi would sleep. They would go wherever the rabbi would go. That's simple as that. Now, no offense to Craig. I love Craig. He is a great man. But if I was discipling Craig, I don't want him at my house. I don't want, my, I don't want him to be showing up every day. Like I wake up in the morning and he's the first thing I see. Really? No offense, brother. I love you. 
you're a coordinator. I don't want to mock you, brother. Okay, so, but you, you know what I mean? So that's why I'm saying the principles that are involved, even though the context has changed, we can take the principles that Jesus sets, and sets here for us and we can learn from that and say, okay, how do I disciple my brother Craig in the context that I'm in? And that's what I want us to do as, as individuals, okay? So now I, shared, I shared this reality on the devotional wall a few days ago and I actually shared it at an LCM. And, and as you look at Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole chapters. We're going to read it different excerpts. But when one looks at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we read some of the greatest names throughout biblical history. We read about names of people who, I'm sure that if you looked at those names, you would recognize their stories. And as you recognize their stories, you see these great men and women of faith and think, wow. That's pretty awesome. For example, you have this here. You can read through that if you like, but while you read through it, I want you to note down how many names you know, like actually really know. That when I say know, that you know their story. Now, you've got the really basic ones. Abraham, we all know that. I'm going I'm to just read the names, and I want you to raise your hand if you know about them and their story. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, raise your hand if you know about their stories. Very nice, very nice. Okay, Judah, Tamar. And who knows Judah? Raise your hand. Oh, there's a few, there's a few. Tamar, who knows who Tamar is? Okay, all right. What about Perez? Okay, okay then. Uh, Hezron, who's the father of Ram? Pastor John, I think you should just leave your hand down because I know it'll be up for the whole time, okay? So that, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Pastor John's just sitting there, his arms are getting tired because it's been up for the whole thing, so... Okay, um, Aminadab, no, Nashon, Salmon, Rahab, raise your hand if you know Rahab, Boaz, Obed, very nice, all right, Jesse, very nice, what about David, okay, that's nice, thank you, all right, Solomon, uh, Uriah, who knows who Uriah is? I always, I'm always so encouraged with this, and the fact that it says the wife of Uriah. It, who knows who the wife of Uriah was? Who's the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. So I, I really think it's really quite encouraging, the fact that Bathsheba's not actually named. It's, it's the man of honor, which was actually Uriah, who, who, who's a very godly man, the wife of Uriah. I thought that was really cool. Sorry, sidetrack. Okay, Rehoboam. Well done. Okay, so you can go on, and you can go on, and you can go on. Next one. All right. You have Zerubbabel, you have Shealtiel, you have a whole bunch of different names. These are names we know. These are names that we heard, but might not, there are, sorry, there are names that we have heard, but might, 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 might not know much about. There are names that we do not know. But the point of this genealogy from a theological perspective was to establish the Jewishness of Christ, that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But the practical application, when I look at this genealogy of Christ, shows me my first point about discipleship. Um, I've got three slides there, which I just highlighted various names. This is the first focus of discipleship genuine discipleship takes place when jesus is the main focus that's when it takes place you see everything that that genealogy did when you read about abraham 
Isaac, Jacob, when you read about David or Solomon or Rehoboam, when you read about Zerubbabel and, and all these men of God within the genealogy of Jesus Christ, irrespective of what they accomplished, their ultimate purpose was for the bringing forth of Jesus. Their lives were a testimony of the greatness of God, but it all pointed to Jesus. That's what the main focus of discipleship should be, that our role when we involve ourselves with the lives of others is to point them to Jesus. He is the main focus. See, a trap we can fall into in discipleship is this. One, we can unintentionally become the main focus of who we are discipling. Unintentionally. We can sit there and we become the answer man or answer woman. We become the comfort when they go through hard times. We become the shoulder that they lean on when they're going through difficulty. We become that. But we're not supposed to be that. Well, we're, now, I'm not saying don't support people. I'm not saying don't encourage people. I'm saying don't pray for people. What I'm saying is our focus should be directing them to Jesus who is the ultimate support, who is the ultimate comfort, who is the ultimate hope. That's one of the things that can happen. We can unintentionally become the focus of who we're discipling, or we can unintentionally make the person who's discipling us the main focus. We can look at various people and place them on pedestals as opposed to placing the Lord Jesus on his rightful pedestal. And, and that is just a, a function of our sinful nature. We, we, we try and find sources to meet a need. And, and instead of finding that need met in Christ, we find that we replace Jesus with a lesser, inferior substitute. Because this is what happens. Uh, one preacher termed it this way. When you as a leader are no longer capable, like you, you first you're idolized. You're idolized by being a leader or by being a supporter, whatever it might be. But as soon as you fail to meet a need, then you're demonized. Then you're, then you're the enemy. Why? Because the focus was never supposed to be you as an individual. The focus was always to be and should always be the person of Jesus Christ. And this has happened throughout Scripture. We, as part of our sinful nature, will try to find replacements for things. You look at Hebrews. What's Hebrews guilty of? The church in Jerusalem was guilty of reverting back to or leaning back on their old former ways. They would go back to their old traditions of, of, the, of, the Jew, of Judaism. That's the whole reason why he said to them, Jesus is better than. He, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, wanted to direct back their vision to the person of Jesus Christ. Galatians, what was they guilty of? They were guilty of doing works, thinking that their righteousness could be attained by keeping the law. Paul says to them, no, for, works are, for by the works of the flesh shall no flesh be justified. And he says, no, it's not found within those things. 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, what's the guilty of there? Of these Christians who are trying to identify, oh, I follow Apollos. Oh, I follow Paul. Oh, well, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. You know what I mean? And they had, it wasn't even the fact that they were following Jesus, it's that they used Jesus as a title to promote themselves. And so you see, even people within the Bible guilty of, of the same things that we are guilty of. And that's the reason why, even though it was written over 2,000 years ago, it is still just as relevant now. You see, it is the person of Christ 
that we are to be directing people to for salvation, for, sus- for sustenance, and for sanctification. Why? Because when you look at it, it was Jesus who fulfilled prophecy and the promises of God. Not me, not man. It is Jesus who lived the life that met the standard of perfection that God required. Not me. It, it, was, it was Jesus who was falsely accused and sentenced to death. Not me. It was Jesus who was scourged and beaten and mocked and abused, who had his beard ripped off his face. It was Jesus who went through that. Not me. It was Jesus who was nailed on a cross, put there for three hours, taken upon himself, my sin, your sin, our offenses against God, not me. It was Jesus who bore the full brunt of God's anger and of God's judgment and of God's wrath for my sin. That wasn't me. The reason why Jesus is to be the main focus is because it was Jesus, the one who conquered death, rose from the grave so that we might have access to God the Father, that we might receive forgiveness of sin. It was Jesus who did that, not me. That's the reason why discipleship, in discipleship, our role is to point people to Jesus, not me. Not you, not anyone else. It is him that we find this. And that's what this whole genealogy of the, of the birth of Christ, of the family tree of Christ, it, that's the point. The point is he is the main focus. That's absolutely amazing because when you read through all of those facts of what Jesus did, you'll notice not one of those things had any reference to me doing anything. You know what that reference is to me? That reference to me is what he did for me. That's what it is. That's why he is to be the focus. Because people will let you down. People will upset you. It is what Jesus has done. It is what Jesus does. And it's what Jesus is going to do that is to be our focus. This is the reason why in Jeremiah chapter 17, we read this. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Whose, turn, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. You know why cursed is the man who trusts in man? Because man lets you down. Because man fails. Now let's re- re- reword that. Because I will let you down. Because I will fail you. Because I am a man full of sin in need of just as much grace as everybody else. That's why when it comes to discipleship, our main focus is to be the Lord Jesus. That is our first lesson. And for some reason, ah, there we go. That is our first lesson. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is really cool. I like this for the second lesson. Um, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, down to verse 21. She will bear a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. From this particular passage, we have our second lesson. When family 
is built. You know what discipleship is about? Genuine discipleship takes place, yes, when Jesus is the main focus. Genuine discipleship takes place when family is built. Uh, Let me explain. Earlier this year, we talked about seeing as Jesus sees. Seeing as Jesus sees. And the fact that when Jesus saw someone, he saw them through the eyes of God's heart. For example, Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, when everybody else, I think uh, it was a coinciding stories in Mark's gospel as well as in Luke's gospel regarding the call of Matthew. You hear things of people complaining, well, why are you calling him, etc., etc. But Jesus did not see a tax collector alone. He saw someone in need of forgiveness. He saw someone in need of love. He saw someone that in need of transformation. And you see how Matthew in turn becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus. I don't know if I actually put those up there. No, I didn't. Okay. You have the woman at the well in John chapter 4. When Jesus sees her, he does not see a Samaritan woman. He sees a woman that's in need of acceptance. He sees a woman that's in need of, 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 of change. He sees a woman that's in need of, of love or, or for who she is. This is. That's what Jesus saw. When Jesus looked, he saw not as we saw. Um, when he saw the tax collector up a tree in Luke chapter 19, he didn't see a short guy that couldn't see him. He saw someone that, was, that when, when come into contact with the Messiah, transformed and gave back so much. When you have the likes of this, the Roman centurion of Matthew chapter 8, who trusts what the Lord Jesus has to say because of his faith. And Jesus in turn uses that faith as an example. See, Jesus could see more than what others could see. He could even see the Pharisees and their hypocrisy uh, in Mark chapter 10. See, because Jesus could see and interpret things under the umbrella of God's heart, of God's ultimate plan, there was a motivation and resolve to finish the work that he had been given to do. That's in John 17 verse 4. Now, this applies also to us in the call for making disciples. How we see what we see. When we come to church, do we see church as a building? When we come to church, do we see it just as a gathering on one Sunday a week and then we go our own way? Do we see church as a place where it's just a respite from the rest of the world? How do we see church? Or do we see church as the family God has made it? Do we see the church as the bride of Christ. You see, often we, we can look at church uh, about a, almost as a business. And there are some churches that do. Please, I'm, I'm not going to mock any churches or dog on any churches. I'm just saying sometimes we can take uh, corporate ideas and apply them to a church context, but that doesn't work because corporate ideas are of the world and the church is of the Spirit. And so it's important then that when we look at discipleship, it's not about corporate mentoring. Even though if you have a corporate mentor, that's fine. I, please don't, I, I'm not disrespecting you. But if you have a corporate mentor, if you have any of those things taking place, that's because they see it as a job. They see it as a, 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 the means by which they get paid. They see it as I want to invest into you because you can benefit my business. Whereas the church 
it's not about corporate mentoring, it's about being involved. And for church, it's about, it's about loving on people. And, and I know I say this phrase, and I've heard this phrase repeated over and over again, it's, it's doing life with people. It, it's actually involving yourself with individuals. And I know for myself, this is, this is even where I lack. But I know that, okay, why do I lack? It's because I fail to see you as my brother and my sister. I fail to see the, the person for whom Christ died who loves that person just as much as they love me. And, and, and that his love caused you to become my brother and me to become your brother. That's, that's what takes place. And because when I can see, if I can see that, then the same resolve that the Lord Jesus had to do what he did for people will become the same resolve I have for you. Why? Because I see you not as an attendee, not as a participant, but as a family member. Now, not all family members get along, but I do know this. I do know this, and I've experienced this in my own family. Not, not my family as my wife and kids, but my, my brothers and my sister. I do know that when I've fought with my sister, because my sister, she beat me up till I was 14. She, is, she was so mean. But I do know this, that when, when she used to beat me up, we used to fight and all that sort of stuff, um, if somebody attacked me, my sister would jump in to defend me. My sister would like, oh, the things that she used to do, I, I, I think I've told you this story. When I was a youngster, I was in year four or five, and this, this, this ugly guy named Justin, this, I remember, he was, he was, was really ugly. Um, but he, he, he was bullying me. He was bullying me. And he was, a, he, was a, he was quite a big guy. And my sister came out of nowhere with her bag, just pow, and she just smacked him one. And he went flying. He gets up and he tries to hit my sister. I'm sitting there just going, <laughs> crying. But my sister, she defended me. Then she went home and beat me up. But, but the reality is this. The reality is this. See, even though you may not get along, your family. You protect family. You accept family's faults and weaknesses. See, this is what discipleship is about. The church is not an organization full of employees. It is the body of Christ full of family. Or as Peter puts it, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That word household can be read of one's own house, or in other words, as family. See, discipleship, genuine discipleship takes place when we start seeing each other as more than just people who attend a, a place or more than just having a common interest. We are brothers and sisters brought together by the love shed on the cross. That's what we are. Discipleship is about investing into family. And I have seen, I have seen the way parents invest into their children. I've seen Craig and Sue Ann and the way they care for their daughters. I, I have seen Pastor Ben and how he interacts with his son and his daughter before she went overseas. I, I've seen the goose. I've seen the goose. And, and the way the goose go around and do what they do for Hannah. I, I have seen that take place. I have, I, when you do that, it's because you're investing into them because of your love for them and you want to, to shape them and, and mold them and bless them and enable them to stand on their own. Like I still remember when my son, when I used to discipline my son, I would always ask him, why am I doing this, son? Right before I would 
discipline him? Why am I doing this? And his response, because you want me to grow up to be a responsible adult. Exactly. Exactly. And then I would smack him. No, just kidding, okay? But, but all I'm saying is this. See, this is what discipleship is about. Investing into each other's lives so we can stand together. Not stand because of each other, stand together because of our Lord. That's what genuine discipleship is. Here is an insight from Brother Mike Moran. And he, he's the guy who undertook the Bible challenge, which I was really encouraged by. Matthew 1, oh, morning all, morning all, it's from Uncle Mike. Morning all, Matthew 1 is all about the human genealogy of Jesus. Starts with Abraham, father of Jacob, 1-1. One, one. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, in verse 16. Before Jesus went out on his public ministry, he was part of and nurtured by a family. We know that Joseph was an obedient dad, Matthew 1.24. Mary, an obedient mom, Luke chapter 1, verse 38. They nurtured and provided for Jesus and all his brothers and sisters. Joseph and Mary loved Jesus and ensured he got a good education. Jesus spent his early years with his family. Church is a family. I'm challenged about how I've discipled first my blood family, and then it goes to the next level, my church family. It's easy to get complacent lazy even, as we age. I, I really like that insight that Brother Mike shared with us because it's true. Like Grandparents, imagine the impact that you can have on your grandchildren to disciple them, to invest into them. Parents, investing into your children, investing into each other. As, as a church family, you might have within this body of believers here people who don't come from a Christian home. What about investing into them? What about blessing them? Encouraging them, supporting them? There are, there, are people who have, there are people who have turned away or who have not valued what's been given to us because we have failed to meet our responsibility of caring for those within the body of Christ. Because our responsibility to care for those who may be on the fringes. Care for those who have, maybe it's because we have been so caught up in our own lives that we have failed to see as Jesus sees. And because we fail to do that and keep Jesus the main focus in their lives, they've turned their back. See, this is a, a condemnation on us as the people of God. If we are called to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, not just the ones we deem convenient. Not just the ones we deem as relevant. Now, it is this, in, in this context, we can begin with Jesus as a central focus of our lives, with having a right understanding of what we're doing and who we're involved with, leads us to our third lesson. When cost is understood. See, Jesus spoke about the cost of following him in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. He shares about priorities. He shares about wisdom. He shares about vision. He talks about how no man goes into war without first seeing if he's got enough to fight in the battle. And if he doesn't have enough, then he can go and send an emissary to sort of cause peace to be brought about. No man starts building a tower without first actually trying to find out how much material do I have. It's called counting the cost. And I think for a lot of us as Christians, we fail to count the cost of discipleship. It does cost. See, 
in Matthew chapter 2, there are several things that come about through the example of the Magi. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Here, here is some fascinating principles, which I think is really cool. I was asked at the school this. We had a question and answer time during the lunchtime Christian group. And the question was, when Jesus was born, what was the rest of the world doing? And then one person said, as a, as a remark, as a quite an interesting remark, said, what were they doing in China when Jesus was born? And, and I said a somewhat racist comment. I said, well, eating rice, maybe. I don't know. But the more I looked at it, the more I looked at it, these magi were able to interpret through the heavens the birth of the king. You know what was happening? People were recognizing that God was moving in other nations. They did not have the Old Testament. They knew nothing of the promises of God or the promises of the Messiah. And yet, through what they were doing, God, by His grace, revealed to these magi, someone great is coming. Someone great that will transform humanity is going to arrive. And so what do they do? They travel. They travel. For the Magi in the East, they were, able to dis- they were able to discern from the heavens the birth of the King of the Jews. That in and of itself is amazing, but it was a truth that carried with it such importance, it moved them to action. See, they were, they were revealed truth. And because it was such truth that had captivated them and grasped them, you know what they did? They did something about it. They got up and they moved. They didn't know exactly where to go, but they followed a star that had led them to their destination. This means they counted the cost. Now, I I googled the question, where did the Magi come from? And a lot of them actually say around Yemen, past Saudi Arabia, it's roughly 2,200 kilometers to actually from where they were to where Jesus was in Bethlehem. And so they started walking. I, I, I sort of typed in, I sort of worked out, if they sort of walked on their camels, not on their camels, with their camels, <laughs> can you imagine walking on their camel? <laughs> but they walked with their camels basically for about nine months to get where they had to get to see the king. Nine months. Which means they would have had to have, one, crossed over lands that were treacherous, not only terrain, but bandits, robbers, thieves. They would have had to have carried enough food and supplies to grant them nine months worth to be able to get to where they needed to get. You know what they did? They counted the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. For what purpose? To worship Him. For what purpose? To offer Him gifts. They counted the cost and then they acted on that. This is what is involved when you look at what discipleship is all about. It's about counting the cost. It's about the resources that you have available and what you're going to use. It's about time. It's about keeping all of those things in context and saying, this is what I want to do. So when I get into that person's life and invest into them, we may offer ourselves to the Lord and worship Him. That's what genuine discipleship is. It's when the cost is understood. You see, when they arrive, it's no wonder that Herod was upset. Verse 3, when Herod heard it, when Herod the king heard this, 
he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Stop there and think that for a second, okay? All of Jerusalem, when they heard that there was a king of the Jews, if anybody should have known where Jesus should have been born, it should have been these guys. If anybody knew that the king of the Jews was here, it should have been them. They had access to the scriptures. They had access to God's word, and they never spent any time in it. Because when he asked, where is he going to be born? They came back to him and said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem Ephrata. They knew where it was going to take place. But they didn't. They, they, they took that for granted. I didn't put up there, but I'm going to read to you from verse 4 to verse 11. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These magi had been not just convinced, but captivated by the truth that confronted them. It involved them traveling over 2,000 kilometers in treacherous terrain, lands with, with resources and riches. They went to go worship a king who fulfilled biblical prophecy that they knew nothing about. They knew nothing about the prophecy that had been fulfilled. All they knew, because Jesus was the main focus, that they were there to worship. That's it. And it is from that example, we see the same ideas apply to discipleship. The cost of giving up time. It may, may have a lasting effect on the person that you're leading. The cost of a listening ear may bless the speaker with the value of being heard. The cost of eye contact may encourage the person with the warmth of undivided attention. Have you ever spoken with somebody and while you're talking to them, their eyes are darting away to see where they can go? If I've done that to you, please forgive me. It's been, because I know what it feels like. There's a, a, my mentor, Kev, uh, Keith Henderson, I remember this quite distinctly. I had a friend named Sally Fang, Paul and Sally Fang. They were at Bible college. And she told me about Keith and said, Keith, I, I, love, I love it when Keith, I go to Keith and whenever, whatever he's doing and I'm talking with him, I, I go to the, knock on his office door and he stops what he's doing. He looks at me and then I talk to him. And it just, it's so encouraging because her English wasn't the best. And so I, I would go to Keith's place often and I shared that story with Keith. And Keith goes, oh, well, I'm, I'm glad I can be so encouraging. But please don't tell her this. Uh, the reason why I have to put everything down and look at her is because I'm partly deaf. And I have to look at people's lips when they're actually talking to me. And so and I'm like, wow, so you're not that godly. He goes, no, no. But do you see the effect it had on her? Do you see the effect of when you just treat somebody? That's the cost of giving someone attention. That's the cost of picking up a phone call and listening to what they have to say. Some of the things, some of the things that have the biggest impact are the things that are actually really quite simple to do. A smile to give someone of the day. Uh, a, a message to say, I'm praying for you. Actually, uh, through the times, and, and I didn't ask Cass this, I remember one time Cass sent me a message and just, so how can I pray for you, Joe? 
that was a blessing to me. Just recently, I went to a wedding of a former student of mine. She got she graduated two thousand and ten, and I got a wedding. I got a, a wedding invite. I was the only teacher from school that went to this wedding, and it was really quite nice. And she's she's Chinese, and and I was the only sort of non white Asian uh, non Asian person there, but it was really quite nice because this girl every quarter would send me a text just to say how can I pray for you. And she graduated two thousand and ten, and so for the last eight years. I've been getting at least three messages a year just to say, how can I pray for you? See what, that didn't cost much. But this is the cost. When the cost is understood, the cost can be understood, and let me me, me rephrase that. The Magi were willing to sacrifice, the, the Magi were willing to pay the cost because the result far outweighed or the destination far outweighed the journey. That's the reason why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8. I think more often than not, we forget where our destination is. If, if eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things that God has prepared for us, for, for, for those who love him, if, if those things have been revealed to us by His Spirit, we lose sight of that. When we lose sight of that, then we want to go back to how things were. This is the cost of discipleship. The smallest things that may cost could have a long-lasting effect. Conversely, the smallest things that we don't do could do just as much damage. That's the power of a, of a spoken word and, uh, and anger. That's the power of a wrong attitude given and in, 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 in frustration. That can have a long-lasting effect. This is actually a phrase, a, a challenge when reading such passages with particular theme raises certain questions to challenge us. And this is the questions from our sister Eva. She's doing the Bible challenge as well. How do I react when I'm told about good things from God? Do I react like the Magi regarding counting the cost? in obedience and following a physical sign? Am I willing to go to great lengths for God? Do I react like King Herod, who even as king has everything I would imagine or assume and get jealous over some news? When King Herod heard that this, he was disturbed in verse 3. Do I lie and make up stories about my true intentions like Herod? Will I recognize the Messiah when he is right in front of me? Will I still worship him? Will I be able to lavish gifts to my Lord? Will I listen to God when I get a message or go in my own stubborn way? Jesus' beginning, the next slide please. Jesus' beginning was mentioned in this section. Even as a child without disciples, he had a huge impact on those who knew about him through creation and the prophets. Even though I posted all the questions above with relevant verses to refer to, how am I making an impact on those around me? Home, church, school, other teachers and students. Am I a good representation of Jesus Christ, my Lord, in my daily life? You see, if we're going to look at genuine discipleship and what's involved for each of us as individuals, this involves us being able to ask questions of ourselves. And and when God reveals those things to us to do something about it. You see, as a church family, we've all been given this commission to make disciples of all nations. And that commission is something that doesn't happen on its own. It is not 
passive. Disciples cannot be made passively, but actively. Next one, please. Okay. It is in the active living out of our faith we experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're given the power. Why? So we might be witnesses to all nations. It is in the active stepping out by faith we experience the promises of God's Word. Mark chapter 13, verse 11. talks about don't think about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say when it's appropriate. The thing is, you're never going to know that unless you put yourself in that situation. It is, not, it is in the active working out of faith that lasting change occurs. It, the Christian faith is not a spectator sport. And I've said this. I know I've said this. It is not a spectator sport. It, it, it is not something passive where you sit and watch the world go by. You can. You can sit there and watch the world go by. But I tell you what, if you sit there and watch the world go by, you'll, see, you'll miss out on seeing the greatness of God being worked out in your life. You, you'll miss out on the blessings that God wants to bestow upon others through you. You'll miss out on the fact of being a blessing to others. You'll miss out on all of that. Why? Because it's not passive. It's active. It's about us getting up. What's the Great Commission? The Great Commission is not sit and wait. It's go and make. That is active. You get up and you, and you do something. But see, it's never going to go anywhere unless we ourselves have experienced this, this, this challenge, experienced this conviction by the Spirit of God to get up and to do something. Why, why is it active? Because when biblical discipleship takes place, it takes place when Jesus is the main focus, family is built because the cost is understood. That's when biblical, takes, biblical discipleship takes place. And you know what's crazy? We haven't even got to the life of Jesus yet. These are three lessons that we can take and be challenged with within each of our lives and then allow God to mold us. That we get first things first. That it's all about Jesus that we see as he sees, that it's not a, a corporation or a building, but it is a people, brothers and sisters, and that we understand the cost, that we are willing to pay the price of investing into others as he paid the price to invest into us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'd like to sing I Surrender All again. Thank you very much for singing that this morning. And if you'd like to be upstanding, we'll sing, and then I'll close in prayer.
our prayer. We surrender all to you, our blessed Savior. We surrender it all. Father, we thank you for this word this day. and I pray that you might continue to burden our hearts to keep you as the main focus, to see as you see as the family of God, and to count the cost, and to understand that cost and be willing to pay it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen.